This is Trinity Church of the Vale Valley, loving God, loving people, and living free. Hello, everyone. This is Pastor Ethan with Trinity Church, uh, ministering through the Beaver Creek Chapel here in Eagle County, Colorado. Today is June the 11th, 2023. You know, just a little side note before I jump in. I'm, I'm so glad that you're joining with us. It is a beautiful day here in Eagle County. I'm recording this actually on Friday, the 9th of June, and um, it's uh, sun's out. It's gorgeous. If any of you have been watching our, the, our weather forecast out here, it's been a very wet spring. It's a little cooler than it normally is this time of year. But um, I've, I've been in the valley 28 years now, and this is one of the, I think, one of the wettest but greenest and most beautiful springs that I, that I can remember in, in quite a few years. So if you're holding off, coming out to visit us, I encourage you to, to come on out. We'd, we'd love to see you. I'm looking forward to connecting with you when you come out to the Valley. And for those of you who aren't going to make it out this summer, I just want you to know how much it means to me that you're tracking with me in these messages. And um, feel free to spread the word if you think this could be meaningful to anyone. You don't, don't even you don't even need to let me know that you're doing it. And um, the resources that I place on the website, I'm trying to be diligent in doing that with my notes, um, just uh, all the scripture that we look at. But in any case, I just... Uh, it means a lot that you're tracking with me. I love you much. And having said that, let's jump in. Okay? We are continuing in our study of the prayers of Paul. The title of this little series is Prayer from the Heart of God. This is week five, and today's message and next week's message are really two halves of the same prayer, but I don't want to get ahead of myself, okay? So prayers from the, um, the prayers of Paul and looking at these as a lens into the larger teaching and emphasis of prayer in the New Testament. And so far, we've covered really three big ideas, right? The emphasis of prayer that we would just know God, the presence of God, his hope, his family, the power of Christ's resurrection, his transforming presence in our lives. That's one big idea. Um, of emphasis of prayer in the New Testament. A second is that believers would come to know the love of God, right? The unknowable, Paul prays, that we would know and experience the fullness of God's love. Last week, um, we saw that Paul pray, we, we, we saw Paul pray for his friend Philemon, right? And by extension for the church, for believers, that we would experience every good thing that we have in Christ, and that we would experience this through the gift of koinonia, the fellowship and sharing of life that we experience with other believers. Very short, but very profound prayer. Okay, and friends, today and next Sunday, we're taking a step back and looking at a question that we actually addressed on the introductory sermon in this series. And the question is, is there a contrast, right? Even at times a disconnect, between how we see prayer taught and practiced in the New Testament and how prayer is taught and practiced in a large part of Christian culture, right? Not from a judgmental standpoint, but just honestly looking and wrestling with this question because it's important. And we're going to ask this by looking at one of Paul's greatest pastoral prayers for the church, which we find in Colossians chapter 1. Now, let me say this. Um, I taught through Colossians, of course, last year and into this spring, and we looked at this passage of Scripture last fall um, in September. 
Some of you, if you were with me then, either online or in person, so you may remember this. It may seem familiar to you. But it was really a quiet time at Beaver Creek. Not many people were in town. And in any case, it's just about impossible to study the New Testament prayers of Paul without examining this incredible prayer with which Paul opens the equally incredible letter to the, ch to the church in Colossa. So again, um, if you say, hey, Ethan, you, you went through this not too long ago. No apologies. I did, and I'm doing it again. Okay. But before we go there, friends, I want to start with an illustration. And the illustration, I'm, I'm looking at my, my computer screen right now through my very valuable to me, my corrective lenses. Okay? Friends, like many people, I'm very dependent on my glasses. Without them, my vision is blurry. It's distorted. Right? Things don't look as they actually are. And this would prevent me from being able to function. So the lenses in my glasses, they are corrective. They're actually progressive lenses. I have four different lens lengths, four different prescriptions progressively in one lens. They're, they're just a technological marvel. You see, the, I, this idea of corrective lenses, it applies to us in life as well. Because there are times when how we see things, the lens through which we look at life and try to understand life, well, can be distorted. This can lead to confusion, disillusionment, and misunderstanding things and people. There are times that our life vision needs to be corrected. Now, importantly, as people of faith, this applies to us as well. Even with great sincerity, there are times when our vision is distorted about how we understand God, ourselves, other people, the Christian life. And the good news is that God has given us a set of spiritual corrective lenses, and this is Scripture. Now, having said that, of course, it's very possible to have a distorted understanding of what Scripture says, what Scripture means, which is why we come to it consistently, humbly, intelligently, setting aside our own agendas as much as we can, setting aside our own preconceptions, and having hearts and minds that, that foremost desire to hear and learn. Um, boy, there's so much more I want to say about that right there, but I've got to move on. Basically, Scripture is where we start. Scripture is our source. It is our lens. And friends, our text today that we're looking at is a powerful corrective lens to how we understand and consider prayer. Okay. So I want to start with an assertion, and it's this. Friends, the lens of Christian culture sees prayer primarily as the means by which we, right, kind of we're at the center of it, that we ask God to do things for us, okay? Just think about that for a minute. See if you agree with me. If you've been to, you know, let's say if you've been to 100, church, 100 prayer meetings, Christian prayer gatherings in your life, think through those, right, by and large, what was the emphasis of those prayer gatherings and what was actually talked about in the content of the prayer, right? Well, I would assert from my experience that I, yours is very likely the same as mine or close to the same as mine. The emphasis is us asking God to do things for us, okay? Sincerely so. But as this is a direct way to say this, but, but I really think it's true. That's not, of course, not always the case. But predominantly, we view and practice prayer as a means of asking God to meet our needs 
as we understand them. Okay, but here's the question. Is that primarily the emphasis of prayer that we see in Scripture? Okay, because on one hand, Scripture does call us to bring our needs to God. An example, Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, where Paul writes beautifully and powerfully, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with gratitude, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Friends, that is a powerful scripture. But here's the thing. Think about this. Even here, the main focus of prayer is to bring us into a place of gratitude with the result of peace in our hearts and our minds. And if you continue in this passage, you'll, you'll, you'll see Paul say that he has learned to be content in every circumstance because it is God who gives him strength. You see, Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is often held up as one of the chief examples of us praying to God for God to change things in the details of our lives, for, for God to meet our circumstantial needs. And yet the entire focus of Philippians 4 is God's invitation for us to know him, to trust him, to be open to what only he can bring us, peace, joy, hope, contentment, right? At all times. And friends, this is the overwhelming theme of prayer in the New Testament. It is to know God, to know Christ, and to be transformed by his presence and his work within us. All right, so just to encapsulate this again, friends, consider. Christian culture sees prayer primarily as the means by which we ask God to do things for us. Right? That's the assertion I made. You can debate that with me if you want, but I think I'm on pretty solid ground there. In contrast, the lens of Scripture sees prayer primarily as the way we open our hearts for the work that God desires to do in us. Right? God's at the center and what he's doing in us, within us, rather than what he's doing for us, right? primarily in circumstantially temporary ways. You see, my friends, biblically and principally, prayer isn't about God working from the outside in. Right? What I mean by that is God bringing change into our external needs, which then leads us to faith, peace, hope, right, on and on. But rather, prayer is principally about God working from the inside out, transforming us in our spirit, in our soul, our mind, our will, our emotions, bringing love, hope, and wisdom through faith to us. And this faith then leading to transformation in how we relate to the circumstances of life around us. And my friends, that is the focus of Paul's prayer, the focus of Paul's prayer for the church in Colossae that we see in Colossians chapter 1, okay? And today we are looking at verses 9 and 10, right, about the first half of this prayer. And this is what we're going to see, okay? Paul prays, he says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, right, heard about the Colossian church is what he's referring to there, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God. 
Okay, let's unpack that just a bit. Paul begins by saying that his prayer for these believers is unceasing. Right? He says, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. If you're thinking, well, he says for this reason, what's the reason? Well, go back and read the, the, the context in front of it. Okay, but friends, this prayer that Paul prays here, uh, this is an expression of love. Right? Paul isn't praying out of obligation, but because he loves this church and he is confident of God's love for these believers. And so this, this love that he has, it motivates him to pray without ceasing. He says, I haven't stopped praying for you. And what we're going to see is this prayer is centered on Paul's desires for these new disciples that they would come to know just how much it means that God truly loves them. And so he begins by praying that God, by the Holy Spirit, right, unceasingly, he's praying that God will fill these believers with wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. He says, I continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Okay, well, friends, what does Paul mean here by God's will? You know, we tend to think often when we think of God's will in terms of, you know, what choice does God want me to make in this, in this specific situation, right? Should I take career path A or career path B? You know, um, this relationship A, relationship B, you know, whatever it is. I, I, you know, God, you know, I've, I've got decisions to make. I need to know your will on what to do. Friends, the greater emphasis here is the idea of God's will as his overarching purpose, right? Much larger, like looking not just the purpose throughout our own lives as individuals, but his purpose for the church and ultimately his purpose in all creation, right? Who God is, what God is doing, and how God is doing it. You know, to the risk of using a bit of a theological word, this is sometimes called God's decretive will. Right. His great unalterable purpose of the redemption of all things that began in Genesis chapter 3 was fulfilled in Christ and is now being worked out in human history. And this is significant because this means that God's will for us, because again, we, we just always, we, we personalize this. We, may, we tend to put ourselves at the center of it. And to some degrees, that's true. God does, like, what is God's will in my life as I live? What this means is that God's will for us will always be consistent, right? Always, will always be consistent with his work of bringing redemption to all people to his creation. Friends, that is something for us to stop and think about when we consider our words and actions, right? Is, is how we are living, what we are doing, what we are saying and how we're saying it consistent with God's larger purpose of his will to bring redemption to all people. See, another big New Testament theme similar to this is God's will as the idea of his perceptive will as in his precepts, his commands, how God calls us to live, expressing his nature and his character right here, right now, in the midst of life as it really is, whatever our circumstances may be. And this brings up a key point. Paul used the word here, fill, that we would be filled with, that God would fill us with the knowledge of his will through wisdom, understanding that the Spirit gives. 
right? This word fill here has a qualitative sense to it. But the idea isn't just that we would receive intellectual knowledge of God's will, but that our lives, our actions, our countenances would be fully characteristic and characterized by God's will and his redemptive purpose. See, Paul goes on to say that God is going to do this through the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives to us. Now, that phrase, wisdom and understanding, right, this points us towards the knowledge of God's redemptive purposes that is going to penetrate and bring transformation into our ethics, how we think, how this wisdom works itself out in the practicality of how we live, how we relate to people. Just another thought worth mentioning on this. Um, from time to time, I'll quote the scholar, English scholar N.T. Wright. And N.T. Wright points out on, on this passage how God's concept of wisdom and understanding includes the ability to think coherently, right? to consider, to employ our intelligence in regards to Scripture, in regards to God, and to other people. Right? Scripture never places spiritual life against intellectual understanding. And I could talk a lot more about that, but that's very important because there always has been, and there is a resurgent anti-intellectual trend that is present in, part of the churches, in the, present in part of the church today. And friends, that is destructive. See, in Romans 12, Paul calls us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, to be people who are critical thinkers, who listen and consider and are willing to be challenged, right, intellectually and in terms of our understanding of things, including our understanding of Scripture. We should not be afraid of this. You see, in our relationship with Christ, God never asks us to check our brains at the door. We are people of faith, but we are people of faith who use and employ and bring to bear the intellectual capabilities that God has given us. So we see here the ideas of knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Friends, these are the result of a spirit-filled life. And it's a primary purpose of prayer for us to ask God to unfold these things in our life. So Paul goes on, and he says that this knowledge, this wisdom and understanding, it has a direct purpose. And Paul says in verse 10, he says, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him, right? Please the Lord in every way. See, Paul here prays that as a result of us being characterized by the knowledge of God's will and purpose and the result of the Spirit's wisdom and understanding at work in our lives is that we would be, think, think of this, did you hear it? That we would be worthy of God and pleasing to God. In every way. So, time for a show of hands. How many of you would say that your lives are worthy of God and pleasing to Him in every way? If you're like me, maybe you're sitting on your hands. You know, from one perspective, this sounds like a crushing burden. I mean, who can live worthy of God and always please Him? But the key here is that this isn't about performance-based acceptance. Rather, this is an invitation into dependence. I want you to think of an image with me. And this is an image you can likely relate to from your own life, but it's the image of a loving parent teaching their, their little, little person, their toddler, well, to, to toddle, 
to take first steps and walk. And there's this image of a, of a child with their eyes fixed on their parent. And the child slowly stands, right, takes two steps, and then plops back down and says, that's it, no more walking today. Now, does the parent say, I can't believe you. You're not worthy of me. You're not pleasing to me because you started to do something good and then you stopped. Well, no, of course not. They understand the child has to learn. The child has to grow stronger. And they're absolutely filled with joy as the child looks to them, trusts them, and then slowly, sometimes haltingly, takes their next steps. My friends, God knows that we will not reach perfection in this life. In fact, at its core, being a disciple of Jesus is not about moral perfection. Rather, it's about trust and dependence and yieldedness to the presence, the life, the nature and character of Christ within us as we take a step at a time. You see, the essence of sin is not failure and stumbling. When we are following Christ and when our heart is saying, Lord, you know, I may be tripping every third step here, step here, but the desire of my heart is for your will to be done. My friends, rather, the essence of sin is the prideful decision to follow ourselves instead of Christ. To say in our heart, God, I know I believe in you, but right now, my desire is for my will to be done. You see, like a loving parent watching their children learn to walk, what pleases God is for our hearts to be set on Him, for us to know Him, to look to Him, to trust Him, and grow in our sincere desire to obey Him, right? For our lives to be characterized by Him. I mean, consider the words of James chapter 3, verse 13. James asked, He said, Who is wise and understanding among you, right? Who has wisdom and understanding? Let them show it by their goodness, by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. You know, from a broader perspective of the New Testament, we could paraphrase James here as saying, So, you think you're wise and understanding? Then show this by how you love, by how you humbly love the people around you. For this is the chief expression of God's wisdom. Now, Paul gives primary examples of what it looks like to live a life worthy and pleasing of God as he continues in the prayer. And the first that he mentions is that in Christ, our lives will be bearing fruit. Right? Paul says, I pray that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. You see, this is the practical outworking of what we just discussed. When our lives are led by the Spirit internally, this will be expressed through how we live externally, right? Friends, we see this metaphor of bearing fruit, of course, throughout the New Testament. Just as fruit is the inevitable product of a healthy plant, fruit in our lives is the inevitable result, both inwardly and outwardly, of a healthy, honest, and dependent relationship with God. Now, what this fruit is at its core, is the fruit of the Spirit, the character and nature of Christ in us, expressed in how we, how we feel, how we think, and how we act. It's hope, joy, peace, love, 
patience, courage, contentment. These are the fruit of God's presence internally. And and, and, and don't miss this. We, We know this. They will be expressed also in how we live externally and our relationship with others. Compassion, service, kindness, generosity, good works, a sincere desire and activeness in making the lives of people around us better. This is what Paul is getting at. The fruit of Christ's Spirit will first change who we are and then will inevitably and increasingly bring God's nature and character into what we do, right? And what we say and how we do it and how we say it. You see, so Paul is praying that these new disciples, common believers, that they would grow in their God-given wisdom and understanding, resulting in everyday lives that are worthy and pleasing to God, and that they will be bearers of the Spirit's fruit as they go about their daily lives. And my friends, this is how the first century world was changed. And this is how God will bring his kingdom change into our world today. All right, so going on, Paul has prayed, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord, please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, and the last thought for today, and growing in the knowledge of God. Now, it sounds like kind of Paul is being redundant here, but he's not. Rather, this prayer is like a self-reinforcing and beneficial spiral. God reveals to us the knowledge of his will, his redemptive purpose. And by the Spirit, we grow in understanding and wisdom of how God's will transforms who we are, which results then in our lives increasingly being pleasing to God. And that takes on life as we bear fruit in how we live and our good works, which in turn leads us into a deeper knowledge and understanding of God. Well, let me just sum that up personally. Friends, in my story, I believe that God is leading me deeper into the knowledge of his will. And this is renewing my desire to follow him, to be pleasing to him, which has led me to take actions that I wouldn't have done before. And I'm experiencing God working in, working in me in a way that is then leading me into scripture and a desire for wisdom and understanding of the knowledge of his will right, in a new way. My friends, this is the focus of this prayer and a great theme of prayer in the New Testament, that we will grow in our knowledge and understanding of God, which will result in us increasingly living in a way that pleases God, which in turn will deepen our knowledge and experience of God. Friends, in our relationships with one another, this is something that we are to pray for. This is a, this is an incredibly important thing that Scripture calls us to pray for. Now, what we just discussed is only half of this prayer. And Paul's going to go on to pray that we would be strengthened with all the power of God's glorious might. And we'll dwell into that incredible thought next week. Friends, I love you. Um, again, thank you so much for being here, and I'll be back here with you when we continue. Thank you.